All right, so when I was younger, uh, when I first started out uh, as a pastor, uh, I worked kind of really part-time for a church doing like assistant pastor, youth pastor kind of stuff. And uh, on the side, I was in college. And then also on the side, I built websites just to help pay the bills. And because of that, I had to learn to use Photoshop and do graphic design and a lot of that stuff. And so because of that now, I can spot like fake Photoshop pictures like a pro. And I see these pictures everywhere, these, these doctored, altered pictures. Now, sometimes it's really funny. Like there was one magazine or something that I saw where there was this model, this blonde, uh, this blonde lady, and she was standing there by herself and she was smiling or whatever. And I don't remember what the product was that they were selling. And there was a hand right here on her side, but there was nobody standing next to her. So there was somebody in the original picture that there was another model and he was next to her and he had his arm around her and they photoshopped him out, but they forgot to take his hand off of her side. So there's this lady and she's just standing there with this like phantom hand. And I remember thinking that one was pretty funny. Uh, and a lot of times they're funny, but usually they're pretty sad. And I think this is a huge deal on stuff like Facebook and Instagram. Um, We've got people that are always trying to just put forward this, this sort of false view of themselves, right? They want to control how everybody around them perceives them. Um, and so they obsess, they use Photoshop, they use these different filters. Um, I just learned about taking pictures from certain angles because I took a picture of somebody and they yelled at me. No, you have to take, is it from the above is where you take pictures? I took a picture from like here. They freaked out. No, my extra chins or whatever. I don't know. Anyway, so <laughs> I just learned about that. And so here's the thing, though, as if all that's not bad enough, right? Uh, here's what started to happen is people are starting to get their self-worth through that lens, right? They start to believe the hype and they start to believe the fake Instagram version of themselves. Now, what's at the root of this is that we all have this desire and this need to be loved and accepted and we chase that need to be loved and accepted from people, and that takes over. And so here's the thing. I'm here talking about Photoshop and Instagram and all that stuff. That's an individual level to do this. But this happens on the community level as well. Right? There are organizations that are always trying to control the narrative. Right? Just think of Apple. When you think of Apple, what do you think of? Right now, if you have an Android phone, you probably hate Apple and you think, oh, those rich stuck up snobs or whatever, right? But for us Apple geeks, right, I'm sitting here teaching on an iPad, I'm recording the sermon with my iPhone, and I'm flipping through the slides with my MacBook Pro, right? So for those of us Apple fanboys, when we think of Apple, we think of this company that's, oh, they've got it all together and it's clean and it's neat and just uh, everything works. And because that's the, the, the image Apple tries to project is that they need to... Um, they need to control the narrative and they need us to think that everything they make is a product I have to have, uh, even if it's something that I'll never use. Amazon does the same thing. They need us to think that everything that they do is cheap and convenient uh, and it's fine. Don't worry about how we can get a package to your house in two days. Uh, now, here's the kicker. Churches, we do this as well. Churches, uh, I've seen churches that I'll call, they turn into the Instagram church, right? They have to put their best foot forward. Um, they take a lot of care of their reputation, right? They only take pictures from certain angles, I guess you could say. Um, 
and it happens in a few ways, like especially I'm a, you know, we're planting this new church, the porch together. That's the idea here. And I'm part of a group of a lot of church planters. And it's really I see the temptation and I see people do it where they just lie about how many people showed up to their church last week or they lie about what success they've had because you all want to look good in front of the other church planters. And nobody ever really wants to say, man, last week was rough. Nobody showed up. I don't know how I'm going to pay my personal bills next week. It's not kind of stuff we talk about. People like to put their best uh, foot forward. We care about our reputations and that sort of stuff. And when we do that, what we're doing is we're forgetting about the only opinion that really matters. Right? And so we're forgetting about the opinion of our Lord. Now, the church we're going to read about today, as we continue in our series, reading through the, the letters from Jesus to these seven churches in the book of Revelation. So in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we're going to start chapter 3 today. We're going to read the letter to the church uh, in Sardis. And I think Sardis is one of the churches that sort of falls into that Instagram church category where they really care what's on the outside, but not so much what's on the inside. And so if you remember, um, our... Uh, Seven churches are just in the order of uh, what a mail carrier would drop the letters off. And so the next church is Sardis. It was about 30 miles south of Thyatira. Um, do you know Aesop's Fables? You know that book or whatever? Aesop was from this city. I found out this, you know, when I was writing this. That's kind of interesting. But here's the thing. The city was up on a hill like a bluff, you know. And so on three sides of this bluff were super steep, almost like sheer rock face walls. And then one side was a wall and then like sort of a gradual down into the valley there, right? So the only way to get into this city was to go up uh, through there and through the wall. And we're going to talk about that. That's just the geography. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. That's going to come into play. But just remember, the city's up on a hill. Three sides don't have walls because it's just a big drop. And then there's one wall blocking the only way to get in. So let's take a look here. Let's read, um, uh, let's read this. This letter. So remember, these letters all start with a pattern, and every one of the, the letters starts with just a description of who Jesus is. Jesus is writing these letters uh, through the. Oh, sorry, I'm gonna take my jacket off. Through the Apostle John, uh, but he's writing these letters to his church. There we go. Uh, and so he starts, though, every time with just a description of who he is, a description of himself. We'll, so we'll start with that. It says in verse one. And to the angel in the church, uh, to the angel of the church of Sardis, right? The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So he has first the seven spirits and seven stars. So when you read about this, it's a little weird, right? <clears throat> it, the, it's a description first of the Holy Spirit, but it says the seven spirits. And this is where things get a little bit tricky. If you remember what I said early on was one of the mistakes that a lot of people make when they read the book of Revelation is they over literalize the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is what we call apocalyptic literature. And in apocalyptic literature, it's using symbols to talk about real actual things. And so some of these symbols and these numbers are not usually meant to be taken literally. And so when you read the number seven in the book of Revelation, what it means is not that there's seven of them, but it means perfection. Seven is a number that means perfection in the Bible. So this is just another way Jesus is kind of saying to the angel in the church of Sardis, the words of him who has the perfect Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying. There's not seven Holy Spirits. He's saying the Holy Spirit is perfect and I work through my Holy Spirit. And he also says I have the seven stars. So these stars, again, uh, represent the churches. So again, Jesus is picturing himself as the one who through the Holy Spirit is the Lord of his church. Again, seven 
also means, like I said, complete or perfect. And so when he says, I have the seven stars, you know, these seven churches, he's not saying only these seven in the book of Revelation and that's it. What that means, too, is that he's talking about all churches, right? The perfect, the complete, the entire church. So he's Lord of the church in Sardis. He's Lord of the church in Ephesus. We read that letter. He's Lord of the church in uh, churches of all time, right? Churches in Iraq, churches in Africa, churches in China. And here, even in San Francisco, Jesus is the Lord of his church. And so, again, what we have here is this high and this lofty view of who Jesus is. He is the king. He is the Lord. And he works in the life of his churches through the power of his Holy Spirit. And so Jesus has some words for his church in Sardis. So he jumps Usually what happens in these letters, if you remember the pattern, I told you there's usually a pattern and then sometimes the pattern breaks. And when it does, we want to take notice of that. So what happens here is he usually what happens is he says, look, I'm Jesus, the seven blah, blah, blahs, whatever, you know, the high, the almighty. And then he goes now here. Let me tell you what you guys are doing. Good. But here in the church of Sardis, he completely skips the good part. He just jumps straight into the bad. This is like when you come home from school, when you're a little kid or something and your principal called home. You know, and talk to your mom before you got there and you were in trouble. I don't know if you guys did this. This happened to me quite a bit when I was a kid and I would I'd come home and I, you know, I, I used to walk home from school and I'd walk home and my mom would be sitting in there with her arms folded and she would just get right into it. You know, that's kind of what's happening here with Jesus, right? This church, they skipped the good. There's no, hey, what'd you do in school today? It's just let me tell you what's really going on. Verse one. And so he says to the angel of the church of Sardis, right, uh, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So think about what we read here. Um, this church, what we're going to see is in a very different situation than the first bunch of churches we read about. There's no threat of violence here mentioned. There's no persecution mentioned here. It seems that this church was sort of in a peace in a relatively sort of a peaceful place. But here's the thing. One commentator said this, and I like this. He said, sure, this church was peaceful, but it had the same kind of peace that you would find in any cemetery. Right. Because what Jesus says is you have this reputation for being alive, but you're actually dead. The reason that there's nothing really happening in this church is because you guys are dead on the inside. Now, here's the thing. Let me give this illustration here. Uh, my dad uh, is a, like a huge space nerd. You know, he loves space. Uh, he works for NASA now. Um, and he grew up in the 60s during the space race. He's, so uh, <clears throat> when, he, when he was a kid, he built a nine-foot telescope. Like, you know, I was playing sports and doing all this stuff. My dad was the kind of guy who built a telescope in his garage. Uh, he lived down in Santa Cruz. Um, and so I grew up in a house where we were constantly talking about space and watching documentaries. And there were space shuttle models all over our house. And um, I, I, so I grew up kind of loving this stuff, too. I put my name in to be in the first uh, Mars mission crew, you know, but uh, I'd really love to go. But I don't think they're looking for overweight, middle-aged church planters who barely passed all of their science classes growing up. I think they're looking for actual scientists. But, you know, so that's the family I come from, though, right? I would love to go. Anyway, space is fascinating. And here's the thing about it, though. It's hard to picture, really, really picture the vastness of space. Think about this. There are... I looked all this stuff up. There are 200 about that we know of 200 billion galaxies. So think about just try to fathom that number 200 billion galaxies, each made up of hundreds of billions of stars. Now, that's a number of stars. That's math I can't even do, which is why they won't let me go to Mars. 
Um, now, here's the thing, too. Light takes time to travel. So the best measure we have of distance in space is what they call light years, how long it takes light to travel for one year. And so, for instance, sunlight takes 8 minutes and 20 seconds to get to Earth from the sun. And so what that means is when you look at the light from the sun, you're actually kind of looking at something that happened 8 minutes and 20 seconds ago, right? The light left the sun, and so when we're looking at the sun, what we're seeing is 8 minutes and 20 seconds ago. The same is true with stars. But here's the thing. The closest star, aside from the sun, of course, is called Alpha Centauri A. It's 4.3 light years away. That means that when my dad gets all dorky and breaks out his nine-foot telescope and he points it at Alpha Centauri A, he's actually looking at what the star looked like 4.3 years ago. That's crazy, right? Now, let's look further. The nearest... Uh, other galaxy outside of ours is called the Andromeda galaxy. It's about 2 million light years away. And we can look at this with telescopes, you know, these NASA dorks. They've got these, I don't know how these work. There's one on the way if you're driving to Santa Cruz on 280. There's that big telescope on the side where they proved Einstein's theory of relativity. Uh, anyway, so I, I think they, that works somehow that they can point it at these stars and see things again. Barely passed every science class I ever took, so I don't know how telescopes work. But they point these telescopes at uh, these galaxies, and you can see what we're looking at when we do that is we're looking at what these galaxies look like. The clo- even the closest galaxy, what it looked like two million years ago. And, uh, but what we do is we talk about this star, and we see, and we say, oh, this star is alive and whatever. But uh, at some point, if that star was to fade out, we wouldn't know for two million years. It would continue to look alive, and it would continue to look alive. For two million years, we would write about, you know, these different stars. Alpha Centauri A, that's, you know, that one's a little closer. But from these galaxies, we would write, oh, this galaxy, that. And two million years would go by, and we would have absolutely no idea. That's Jesus' description of the church in Sardis. At one point, this church was alive. It was thriving. They had a bunch of outward things that make you look alive. But Jesus says, you guys are like one of those stars that died. Right? You look okay now. People still think you're alive, but actually you're dead. And this, jumping to our sort of setting, this is a huge danger for churches in America. Why? Well, there's a lot of different reasons why uh, this happens, and we'll get into some of those later. I think a big one is money. Money in church, it makes it really easy to keep a church looking alive uh, and have it not actually be. Um, I went to... um, I went to, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but anyway, I went to a Christian high school here in the city, and we met at this church on the other side of town, and we used their facilities. It was like a pretty small high school. And um, uh, this church, one Sunday, I decided to go to this church uh, instead of going to my own church. I wanted to see what the church where our school met was like. And so I showed up, and there was like 12 or 13 people in an auditorium that seated about 600, and none of them sat within like... 20 feet of each other. Right? It was all over the place. And so I, I was really curious, and I asked one of my teachers or my principal or something, like, how is this church still alive? And he goes, oh, there's a lady here who owns a car dealership on Van Ness Street. And she tithes from her business, and that's enough money to keep this church going, even though they only have like 12 people. You know, at one point that church was six or 700 people. And so from the outside, you Google this church or whatever, I guess it's, you know, it was right when Google started. But, you know, you Google the church and they have a whole website and it looks like everything's good. And you, you know, they have this big church building and they keep it up real nice. But what's actually happening there? Nothing. There was no life in that church. And he says that's what's going on here in the church uh, in 
Sardis. He says, look, you guys look alive. We see the starlight, but here's the thing, dude. You're dead. These are very harsh words. Think for a second about somebody who is clinging to life, but they're still alive, right? They're moving around. They're doing everything they can to fight the pain and stay alive. You've seen this in movies when somebody gets shot or whatever. That always drove me nuts, by the way. I love those westerns, old westerns. Uh, I watch a lot of those. And every time somebody gets shot, they get shot in the stomach, and then they just fall over, and they're not moving anymore. I'm like, ah, this is really fake. If you've ever seen, like, a... This is not how people get shot. You get shot in the stomach, you're going to be writhing around on the floor, and you're going to be holding your stomach, and you're going to be trying to stop the pain. Now, think about, on the other hand, though, think about an actual dead body. If you've ever seen one, it's a little weird, because most of us don't spend any time with dead bodies. Uh, Every now and again... We see one in a hospital or something. Uh, in the ancient world, everybody knew about death. People died at home. We didn't die. They didn't die in hospitals. Uh, and they would keep the body in the house for like a day or two, and they would have a big ser- – there was different cultures and different ways to do it. But people saw death everywhere. And so when the Bible talks about death, it really struck a chord with people. They actually knew what it was like. And I've seen just a few dead bodies in my life, um, even more than the cops know about. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But the creepiest part, here's the thing, the creepiest part about a dead body is just how still and how lifeless it is. There is nothing there. This is a person I used to know, and now it's just empty. It's an empty shell, right? It's just there's no fight, there's no struggle, just death. And you can see that this is the description that Jesus uses for this church, and it's kind of a huge deal. To call them dead is no joke, right? They're... um, There's no struggle in their faith. There's no uh, persevering with hope into eternity, which is what the whole book of Revelation is about. They're just there and nothing is happening. They're still and they're lifeless. And that is just about the worst thing that Jesus could say about any church is that you guys are dead. You guys are lifeless. You're just there. But here's the thing, right? How does a church go from being alive to being dead? How does that happen? Well, let me give you my non-exhaustive list, right? I just came up, I, sat, I spent some time thinking, and I actually had more than this, and I cut a bunch of them out. But let me just give you a few. A few things that happen in the life of a church that can cause them to go from life to death. The first one is like real sin. The idea of sin and death are intrinsically linked throughout the entire Bible. And so this has to be the first one on our list. One of the easiest ways that a church moves from life to death is for that church in one way or another to fall into sin or for people in that church to fall into sin and for the church to just excuse that sin away. You know what? We don't really care about that. We don't care that this is eating you from the inside out. And that sin, right, uh, you know, one little bit of sin in the loaf, right, ruins the whole thing. And so uh, for a church to get together and to say we know better than God about this thing, whatever it is. We, we know what, 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 what's, what's right and what's wrong, and God is wrong about what he says. It's like a really dangerous place to be. Um, another one is what I just talked about where we talked about money. Uh, money is one of the ways that we can easily take our eyes off the Great Commission. Now, there's nothing wrong with money, um, but the Bible actually does talk about the dangers of money. Jesus especially talks about the danger of money a lot uh, because what we do is we use money to build our comfort, and then that comfort keeps us away from the mission of God. And we use the money to prop up our nonprofit organization and to make sure our pastors are always getting paid, which is a great thing, by the way. And uh, just kidding. And <laughs> uh, we use the money for security, and then we forget about the mission of God. And so um, the money can take away that desperation, just like I talked about with that church. I think that's what was happening with that church when I was in high school. Um, Another one is just sort of bowing to cultural pressure on different ideas. 
Um, one of the big ones that churches have given up on in the evangelical world is just the idea of uh, divorce. You know, like the idea that it's just okay, like marriage is not permanent the way that it's supposed to be. And we're just going to put up the, the rate of people getting divorced within the church is about the same as it is uh, outside the church. We do this in a lot of other ways, right? Is God the creator, uh, sexual ethics, um, humility and power, right? The church has taken the world's idea of power and applied it to the church and said, you know what? We need to be powerful the way that politicians are powerful. Um, some of the other ways we do this, right, is uh, churches mess up the truth and love balance um, where we, we either give up on truth or we give up on love. And we don't really keep those things in tension as we interact with the world around us. Um, and then here's the last one that I'll give is churches stop praying. I have more. I have a bunch of these. I could do this all day. Things that kill a church, right? I've been a pastor for a long time. Uh, but uh, here's one of the big ones is uh, churches don't pray together. Um, I've noticed this is churches that don't pray together are on the fast track to being a dead church. And so missional families with our church, we want we talk about missional families. We want to be the kind of churches that really do pray together and spend time together, because what prayer does is I mean, it does a lot of things. uh, But one of the main things it does is prayer changes us and God uses prayer to mold us into the kind of church uh, that he really wants us to be. And so. when we decide not to pray, what we're really saying is, God, we can figure out church without you. Um, and we can, uh, we can do this on our own. We don't need the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't need to be relying on you. We can figure this out by ourselves. And so um, I think that that might be one of the things that happened here in this church in Sardis, uh, is that they were somehow they moved from death to life. And usually when that happens, prayer is one of the things that goes. There's probably more that we could add to this list. There's a million things that we could add to this list, but I think this is a pretty good start. And you can see how easy it is for a church to drift from life to death. It happens all the time with churches and especially with churches in America. So my question is, what do we do about it? Well, uh, what did Jesus tell the church in Sardis to do? Let's keep going. Let's take a look. This is uh, verse two. Uh, He says this, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete uh, in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. So he says, I have uh, not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Um, this reminds me of the vision that Daniel had, uh, this vision, not Daniel had, in the book of Daniel, where God tells the king, he says, look, you've been weighed in the balances and you have been found wanting. And then that's the night that the king dies. And what what Jesus is basically saying is, look, guys, what you're doing is not cutting the Dijon, right? It ain't cutting the mustard. It's not working. Uh, But there is hope. So what should you do? And he says, wake up. Now, some translations also say, and I like both of these translations, some say be alert. Now, here's here's where this is important. Story time. Okay, we're getting into the history now. So put on your history channel goggles because here we go. There's a book in book one of the Persian War. There's a, a historian named Herodotus. He wrote this story about the city of Sardis being taken over by a Persian king, Cyrus. You know Cyrus from the Bible. He's in Isaiah. He's in uh, like uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, so anyway, he, he was traveling through here with his army, and he took the city of Cyrus. And this is how it happened. This event actually became so famous that the, the idea of Sardis became sort of a proverb in the ancient world. Um, and here's what happened. Uh, after a few sort of failed attempts to break into that city wall— Uh, Cyrus said he'd give anybody um, a 
reward who could in his army who could break through the wall. And two soldiers, these two guys, Mardian and Hieroetus, uh, came up with the plan. Now, remember, I told you that the wall was only on one side because the other three sides of the city were just this sheer rock cliff. And uh, the, the city of Sardis was so arrogant and cocky that they didn't even put guards around the back sides of the wall. They only had their guards on the front side, and they left the back rock cliff uh, empty. And during the day, these two guys were sneaking around just trying to look at a way to get up the side of the wall. And um, while they were there, uh, they saw a soldier at the top of the wall just kind of walking, and he dropped his helmet over the edge. And then he walked down this little ledge to the bottom, picked up his helmet, and then walked back up the ledge. So there was a way to get up into the city through the back way. There was like sort of a secret walkway that nobody knew about. And because this one soldier dropped his helmet, these two guys in Cyrus, the enemy's army, saw him do it. And so that night, they broke into the city, opened the door, took a bunch of soldiers with them, uh, opened the front door to the city, uh, and the city was breached, and Cyrus uh, took the city of Sardis. And it became famous just sort of being lazy and not even protecting the backside of your city was what happened in Cyrus. Well, that's the first story, but there's actually a second, which is told by in another uh, Greek historian. And years later, there was another guy named Antiochus, who was um, one of the generals. Um, Alexander the Great broke his army, his kingdom, or his empire up into a, a four spots, and he gave him to four of his generals. And the same exact thing basically happened. Years later, his army was attacking Sardis, and there was uh, uh, they couldn't get through the big wall in the front. And um, one of the guards thought, well, surely we can kind of climb up the same wall. And he found that same spot, and they breached the wall, and the city fell again. Now, everybody in the ancient world knew these two stories. There were two times when the city of Sardis fell because the soldiers who were supposed to be guarding it were either neglecting their duty or the generals were just lazy and confident. And no doubt that what Jesus says here, he has this in mind when he tells them, guys, wake up or be alert. Pay attention to the part that you don't think really matters. Um, it was a way for him to say, guys, you should be guarding the wall. And if anybody should know about this, it should be you. Because you've seen this happen in your own city. And so what he says is, be alert, guard the wall, strengthen what remains and is about to die. So what he says is, look, I haven't given up on you. There still is hope. Now, Jesus moves the metaphor. This is something that's very common in apocalyptic literature, is where the metaphor, they, uh, these writers use what we call mixed metaphors. And then if you try to compare them, you, you get lost. Because Jesus just had this whole thing about how you guys are dead and you just look like you're alive, but you're actually dead. And now he says, hey, you guys are about to die. And we're confused, right? Are they dead or are they not dead or what's going on? Well, really, it's just it's a very common thing you see in apocalyptic literature is mixed metaphors. So he moves the metaphor um, earlier. Like I said, he said they're dead. Now they're just sort of almost dead. Um, he says, if you don't strengthen the things that you actually do have, you're going to die. Uh, the idea is that there were still morsels of the gospel there. And he says, you need to learn uh, to strengthen that gospel. You need to lean into the gospel. Take it to heart. Uh, that's the way out. That's the way to wake up and to be alert. Um, I love uh, to sit. One of my favorite things in the entire world is to sit by a warm fire and read a book. That's like I love I, – I don't have a fireplace in my house. I have a little fake fireplace that we plug into the wall, and there's like these little paper things that go, you know, and it's about this big, and it's not even close. Sometimes I turn on the Netflix 4K fireplace, you know, 
And I sit there and I, I turn the sound up and put my hand by the TV. My TV gets real hot, you know. Anyway, uh, I love to sit by a fireplace. I don't get to do it very much. Both of my parents at their houses have fireplaces. We were at Christmas at my dad's house. You know, one year, by the way, at Christmas, these fascist Nazi good-for-nothings did a, a no-burn day on Christmas Day. Come on, San Jose. Anyway, that's a whole other story. So that was last year. This year, we got to sit by the fire. And uh, uh, this year, we had the fire going. And... Uh, I was sitting there and I was reading, and my dad was in the living room, which is on the other side of his house, and he was watching the Warriors. Now, if you know anything about the Warriors this year, they're terrible, right? Oof. You know, they're like the church in Sardis. They're dead. They're practically dead, right? Uh, and so the Warriors, though, were actually beating the Houston Rockets. It was a Christmas miracle, right? The Rockets are a lot better than the Warriors this year, and we beat them anyway. And so I left the fire, and I went and I watched the end of the Warriors game, and I came back to the fire, and I hadn't put a log on it in like a few hours. And I got back, and you, you know what the fire was, right? It was just a little embers in the bottom. And I had a quick couple of minutes to go outside, get more firewood, bring it in, throw it on the fire, and then get on my hands and knees and blow on it, you know, and try to get things going again. And Jesus is basically saying that's what's happening here with the life of the church of Sardis is they've just got a couple of embers left. And their church is about to, to – the, the fire is about to go out. And he says you need to get on your hands and knees. You need to blow on these embers. Now, how do they do that? He says there's three action items. The first is remember what you have received and what you have heard. So this is always language when, you've, when it talks about something you have received in the New Testament to talk about what we've learned from the apostles. This whole Christian history and theology and everything about our faith was handed to this generation from the apostles. It's the gospel story, right? And um, it's the story of King Jesus, right? Uh, buying back or redeeming his people through his death and his resurrection and bringing them back to the God that they were created to be in perfect communion with. That's the gospel story. So what he says is remember that gospel, go back to it. And when you get there, what you need to do is you need to keep it. So you need to go back to it. When you get there, you need to keep it. Once you get back to the basics of the gospel, you never move on. There is no advanced Christian faith, right? There's no extra stuff that's added to the gospel. What he says is when you get the gospel, stay there and then wait for the second coming. And if you ever do find yourself trying to move on from the gospel to something else and you're holding on to something else for your salvation besides the very simple gospel of Jesus Christ, he says this is what you need to do. You need to repent of that. Right? So that's the three things. You need to go back to the gospel. You need to stay there. And if you ever do wander, you need to repent. Um, there's that old fable about if you throw a frog in boiling water. I'm sorry, in uh, boiling water, right? It'll jump out. But if you throw a frog in a pot of cold water, it'll just sit there. And if you slowly turn up the heat, you can just boil it alive. So I Googled this. That's total baloney. If you do that to a frog, it's going to get hot and he's going to jump out of the pot. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Even though people have been saying this probably for hundreds of years or whatever. But here's the thing. You get the idea, right? Even though that totally doesn't make sense and it would never happen in real life. Uh, something happens slowly. You don't even notice that it's happening. Uh, don't even notice that it's happening to you. There was a um, Calvin and Hobbes about this. You know, How come every day is exactly the same and then all of a sudden everything is different? You know, um, you know Calvin and Hobbes. I love Calvin and Hobbes growing up. Um, this is how people leave the gospel. It's usually slow and it happens in small steps. It's just we're slowly turning up the heat and we don't even notice that we're leaving the gospel. And then one day you wake up and you find yourself holding on to something else for your salvation besides the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so what Jesus says is you need to go back to the gospel. You need to stick with the basics. And if you don't, here's the consequences for disobedience. He says, um, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I have come against you. So he says, look, I'm gonna, if you don't do this, I'm going to come like a thief. So throughout the New Testament, the imagery of Jesus coming like a thief is always used to talk about the second coming. And in the first coming, he came as, you know, little Jesus, meek and mild. He grew up. He was soft and gentle. And uh, he died on the cross and all, you know, like all this stuff. It was all about redemption. The second coming, though, is going to be all about judging his enemies, winning the war with Satan, and then bringing his people into the new eternity. And so what the imagery is clear. Uh, when he says, I'm coming like a thief, the idea there is you have no idea when a thief is going to rob your house, right? Thieves never text you and say, hey, guys, I'm going to rob your house in 10 minutes. Right? A thief shows up, especially when you're not expecting it. And so Jesus says that the second coming is going to come like a thief. Nobody has any idea when it's going to happen. And when it does, everybody is going to be surprised. Um, I have a magnet on my fridge that I love that I bought. And it was supposed to make fun of Christians, but I think it's actually pretty good advice. It's a picture of Jesus. And on the magnet, it says, Jesus is coming. Look busy. Right now, uh, I bought it at one of those like uh, gift shops. I think it was in the hate you know, over on Hay Street, and it was supposed to make fun of Christians, uh, but it's actually pretty good advice, right? Is Jesus is, this is what he's telling this church. Guys, I am coming back, and you're not going to know when it happens, and what are you going to be doing when I'm coming, when I do come back? Are you going to be holding on to the gospel? Are you going to be obsessed with the gospel and the, this real salvation? Are you going to be trying to keep that gospel central in your church, or are you going to be drifting off to this other garbage that doesn't actually save you? And that's what he's saying. And so uh, he says, look, if you don't do these three things, keep the gospel or go back to the gospel, keep it and then repent when you stray. If you don't do these three things, I'm going to be against you. And that's uh, what we don't want to hear Jesus ever saying to his church is that I'm going to be against you. You don't want to be in the wrong group when he comes the second time. Right. Um, You want to be in that that first group who are being brought into the new heaven and the new earth. That's where we want to be. We don't want to be in that second group that's at war with Jesus. Now, remember, these, Jesus is saying this to church people. This is a letter to church people. Um, he's saying, if you don't repent of this, you're going to face my judgment. And this is a lot like what he said. And I read this verse a lot because it's the most terrifying verse in the entire Bible for church people. Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's a terrifying verse because what these people are saying is, look, at all this outward stuff, Jesus, that we did for you. Look at how bright the light of our star is shining. And Jesus is going to say, I don't even know who you are. That star died millions of years ago. Right. That that's terrifying. And so uh, from the outside, we've got all this stuff that impresses us. We've got the Instagram filters. Right. We look good on the outside. But what's happening on the inside is nothing. I have no idea who you are. And so that's kind of the bad. Right. There is a little bit of good in this letter to the church at Sardis. Jesus says this, but look, you still have a few, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, um, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So he says, look, there's still a a few people in Sardis. Now, let's be real for a second about what he says here. Um, This is PG-13 Bible study, right? When he says soiled your garments, can you take a wild guess at what that means? 
right? It means uh, you had to go number two and you didn't quite make it to the bathroom. That's what this means, right? And so this is what Jesus says. He says that most of the people in this church, you know, this is what happened to them. There's just a few of you guys here who don't have dirty diapers, I guess you could say, right? And what he's doing is he's using it as a metaphor for purity, for holiness. Some of you are still clean. That's what Jesus says. And so he encourages them to continue to live with that purity. And uh, years later, there was actually a famous church father, a guy named Melito, and he was a bishop, and he was from the city of Sardis. And so most folks who write about this letter and talk about this letter will say that the fact that 100 and whatever years later that this, this was a major center of the Christian faith uh, is proof that this church did take this letter seriously. They did repent, and they became one of the strongest churches in the early church. And so as long as there is a Holy Spirit, like we read about in the beginning, right, the seven spirits, the perfect Holy Spirit, as long as the Holy Spirit is working in the life of a church, there's always hope. Um, and then he ends with the promises, right? So five and six. To the one who conquers... The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot uh, his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So again, he says, look, you'll be clothed in white garments, unsoiled garments. Uh, and he, this imagery is picked up in the book of Revelation at the end when Jesus returns and his army is standing behind him, his church, his people. And they are clothed, they're decked in these pure white garments. And it says, like, uh, so white that you could never get them that white if you bleached them in your washing machine a hundred thousand times. That's what the Bible says, right? No launderer could ever get them this white. That's how clean and pure these garments are going to be. And so to the one who conquers through living out the gospel, they're going to end up with Jesus in the end time, serving in his army, right? serving their king. And that's what he says. Look, if you're one of these people, I will never blot your name out of the book of life. So the book of life is just sort of the membership role for the new community, the redeemed, the children of God who are headed into the new heavens and new earth. I went on a crazy rabbit trail, by the way, researching the book of life a few, was it like a month and a half ago when I was writing these sermons? Um, and there's like, I would love to do someday a sermon just on the book of life and what the Bible says about the book of life and how your name was written before time in the book of life and what it means to be blotted. All this stuff is really fascinating. We don't have time to get into all that. The idea is very simple, though, right? Your name is written on a ledger in heaven. And if your name is on that ledger in heaven, when Jesus comes the second time, like a thief in the night, you're good. Right? You're part of his redeemed people, and that is where you want to be. And that's what he says is, I will confess my name before the Father and his angels. Again, a very clear reference um, to this verse in Matthew 10, 32. He says, um, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is also in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Um, and so the, that's what we want. We want to we get into the new heaven and new earth. We want Jesus to stand there and say, dad, this one's mine. Right. This person belongs to me. This is part. This one, he, she is, is part of my church. And so knowing that we're heading there is where the strength to conquer comes from. Right. This should be our motivation, reaching Jesus. All right. So that's the end of the letter. Now, uh, I'll end with this kind of everybody knows I ride motorcycles because um, that one time I crashed on my way here. <laughs> and uh, uh, every day, not every day, a lot of days, I ride my motorcycle down the hill to my office downtown. So I have an office across the street. It's like a WeWork office across the street from the Transamerica building. And uh, it's pretty, it's on my block, right? The, the, it's on Clay Street and I live at the top of Clay. So I, what I have to do to get to my office 
is just put my bike in neutral and go down the hill. And I just coast all the way down the hill and I don't really use any gas. Uh, and I just coast. Now, here's the thing. I think that that's how a lot of people in church operate, right? Coasting. They go through life with the engine off, not really using any gas or any effort because it's easier. But here's the thing. Coasting works really well when I'm going downhill to work. But what happens when I need to get home? I can't coast up the hill to my house, use a lot of gas to get home. Right, to get back up the hill, I need to turn the engine on and I need to hit it. And uh, I need to you know, ride the clutch all <laughs> you know, up the big giant hill on my bike. Anyway, uh, I think this is what a lot of churches do. They, they form an organization. They get a group of people together and they get comfortable. And then they just start coasting through life. And all of a sudden, like Calvin and Hobbes said, how come everything is always the same and then we wake up and it's different? And all of a sudden, 20 years go by and they wake up and their church is in a completely different place. And they say, is this where we wanted to be? And so what does Jesus say? How do we rev the engine? How do we keep moving? What are the three things he lists here, right? This is what he says. He says, remember the gospel. Don't ever forget the gospel. And so every week when I'm standing up in front of you guys, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, hey, guys, this is what the gospel is. And we talk about this constantly. Every sermon is going to come back to how does the gospel affect our sermon, whatever we're talking about. Um, the second thing is, and keep the gospel, right? And when we get there, make the gospel the center of everything we do. And then the third thing is repent of false gospels. Every church is going to have moments where we're trusting in something else for our success and our salvation. And when that happens, we need to corporately confess. When that happens in your own life, you need to individually confess that this is what's going on. And so let's apply this then to our lives. What are the things that you do first in your life to remember the gospel? Right here, I'm thinking of how do you remember what Jesus has done for you? Do you share your gospel victories with other people? Um, real quick, what I want to do is just sort of give a pitch for the way that we're trying to, as we're doing this partnership and we're planting this new church together. What I want to do is just give a pitch for how this church, I want it to be organized. And what I want to happen is, or the model that we're going to use is we call it, we call them missional families. They're like small groups on steroids. I think the most important thing that church people do together, Sunday mornings are very important. Obviously, I love preaching. I love teaching. I love singing the word together and spending time as a church, a whole church together. But even more important than what we do on Sundays is how we live our lives together. How much time do we actually spend with each other? And one of the ways we want to organize is through missional families. And it's just like a small group. You meet Wednesday night or Tuesday night or whatever it's going to be. And so the hope here is as we merge our two groups together that we want to form another missional family with the folks from this congregation as we merge. And we don't know what night. We're going to do sort of a, um, just an info night in a, sometime in February maybe I'm hoping to do where one of you guys will host at your house. I don't know who. If anybody wants to host, get in touch with me. Uh, somebody hosts and everybody who wants to find out about missional families shows up and we talk about what does this look like. But here's the thing. Here's one of the most wonderful parts of a missional family is you sit down with our missional family. When we do prayer requests, we say, what's one thing you're excited about? What's one thing you're not excited about? And who's somebody in your life that we can be praying for who's not a believer? And we just go around the circle and we share life and we tell these stories. Look, here's what I am not excited about. Here's what I'm stressed about. Here's what's weighing on my heart. And then we say, but here's what I am excited about. And we tell stories of us trying to share the gospel or, you know, that the Niners won yesterday or whatever it is, you know, uh, that sort of thing. We share our life and the things that are important to us. But that kind of stuff doesn't really happen on a Sunday morning. 
And so if we want to be the kind of church that actually remembers the gospel and keeps the gospel, I think missional families is one of the most important settings. But it's also one of the most important settings for this third one is that we repent of false gospels. You see, one of the things we do with the missional family is we don't just say, what are you struggling with? A lot of times we say, why are you struggling with that? And the idea is we want to get to the root of the problem. So not just what's this sin in your life, but why are you doing that sin? Because there's a, the reason is because there's something about the gospel that you're not believing. And so missional families, what we do in missional families is we strengthen relationships to the point where we can be real with each other. We don't have to pretend to be perfect. We can get together and we can say, look, I'm terrible. Here's where I'm terrible. I don't know why, but I can't believe the gospel in this area of my life. And there are other people then who can speak into that. And it really helps us grow, not just as a church, but individually. Um, you know, and uh, as a community, we grow in the gospel. So here's how I'll end then. In 2012, I started thinking about planting a church. 2012 was when I started. Uh, here we are eight years later and we're getting ready. Um, uh, we're getting ready for this partnership. We're getting ready to start this new church together. And I'm very excited about it, obviously. I've been thinking about this for quite a while. 2012, what's that? Eight years now. I mean, there was like a thing where I took a lead pastor role in the middle of that. But eight years, I've been dreaming about church planting. And I have all these pictures in my mind about what a church plant should look like in this. Uh, but here's the thing. Here's what I want to say. What our church looks like on the outside is not really that important. Right? I don't want to be the church, the Instagram church, that always has to pretend we have more people than we do and that things are going better and we have more money and puts, you know, only takes the pictures from what's at the top angle, right? I want to be the church that's okay knowing we have two chins and uh, you know, that things aren't perfect and we're allowed to take pictures from any angle. I don't want to be alive on the outside but dead on the inside. And that's the whole reason that we're doing church kind of slowly and we're doing church in the model that we're doing is because what I want for our church is depth. I want our church to be alive on the inside and full of the Holy Spirit, obsessed with the gospel, just wanting to take the gospel to the, the city around us, right? I want us to be obsessed with Jesus and his kingdom, and I want that obsession to be contagious to the people around us. And I don't care what that actually looks like to the world. You know, I don't care if, like I said last week, we're not going to write any books about how to do church. I'm not going to be a conference speaker. Who cares? Right? What I want to do is be a wonderful group of people who are completely relying on the Holy Spirit to change us and to change the city around us. That's what Jesus was begging from this church in Sardis. That's what he wants from this church in Sardis. And it's what he wants from his church in North Beach and Chinatown. Right? It's what he wants from us. It's what he wants from me. And it's what he wants from you. Amen? All right. Let's pray. Let's close in prayer.